The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Land Trust. Have you heard how landowners are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use? Millions of outdoor recreators seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Landowners are partnering with the Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com/boa. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, but you already knew that because you heard that in the introduction. Got a great show for you today because we've got a returning guest, my buddy. We're going to have a drink after this, so you know what? We're not going to waste your time. His name is Rob Syke. He's a Ukrainian from Alberta, and he's also a sometimes American here in my adopted state of Arizona. He, like me, can get away from the cold when we can. He was in Arizona, Glendale, Arizona, in fact, today and yesterday for for the Vision Conference, a higher-end conference looking at the future of the business of agriculture. So I want to pick his brain, which I hate that term. You know what? When someone says, I want to pick your brain, vultures pick the brains out of dead roadkill. So I'm not really going to pick his brain. We're going to talk about the highlights from the conference that he just attended, looking at all things future of the world's most important industry. Rob Syke, if you are new to listening and viewing my program, has been on here multiple times. He is the CEO and founder of Ag. Advisor Pro uh, with the tagline connecting agriculture to its experts. Agvisor Pro is a company he started a couple of years ago. He has been involved in like 17 different companies throughout his entrepreneurial career, so I call him an ag entrepreneur. He's also the author of Food 5.0. I quoted and gave him a testimonial for that very book, which is over on my shelf as we speak. Anyway, Rob Syke, thanks for being here at the Business of Agriculture. Well, it's great to be here with you, Damien. For the people on the podcast, you can't see, but Damien is quite pale. I'm I'm, uh, tanned up a little bit better than he is but uh, it's great to be in arizona could it be that i've been spending too much time in places like yakima or uh, columbus ohio airplanes. or airplanes yeah. yeah so anyway it is that busy season we're recording this in january dear listener also dear listener if you're a listener we thank you but we also have this on youtube i do release all of the videos so you can watch as well as see uh, what we're talking about but in any case i'm glad you're here and i do encourage you to share this with other people you know both in and outside of the business yeah, share of this is be good this will be good to share this will be a good one to share all right so you went to this vision conference you're um you're always forward looking it's one of the things i really like about hanging out with you is because you challenge me to think and i'm a forward-looking guy about where things are going trends demographics i'm always about trends and demographics in the marketplace and i'm less along the technology you always challenge me because you're along the technology the technology so you want to lead off with that one of the big takeaways from the vision conference you said Kubota, John Deere, and Case IH had their North American representative on the stage for a panel talking about, I believe it was... Well, they were talking about the integration of data through machinery and also automation. So we're going to touch on that. And the Visions Conference was uh, organized by Meister Media and uh, attended by about 110 folks, uh, pretty high end, pretty high level folks at the conference and a real good agenda. So it was a really, really wide uh, ranging 
changing agenda. Yeah, so the folks that come to this are not farmers. They are industry people or even outside the industry people wanting to know where this business goes. Am I right? Yeah, you got that. But there were farmers, and I just wrapped up a conversation with a guy from around Yakima, Washington, actually. He showed up there. So there were farmers in the audience. But typically, this would be people that are driving data, driving sensors, satellite companies, that sort of thing, a lot of equipment and robotics and uh, a lot of demographics too, looking at uh, consumer behavior and yeah. also where uh, where farmers are going to be going. All right. Well, let's. You want to tell me which thing you want to lead off with? We're, we said we really liked the idea about technology, about carbon, about uh, marketplace demographics. Which thing do you want to go with? Well, first? let's start talking about uh, the whole indie, uh, the whole uh, area of sustainability, and what does that mean? And can we have? farming uh, get compensated for doing something quote unquote more sustainably and so uh, the listeners wouldn't know this but back in 2007 I uh, founded a company called uh, Agritrend Aggregation and in the province of Alberta uh, there's legislated greenhouse gas emission reductions in the province only jurisdiction in North America and we created agricultural offsets to the tune of 50 million dollars and so there's more and more people interested in what that means for the farming community how does that all fit in and what's really important to me is can it lead to difference in practice on farms okay and uh, you'll know uh, because you keep up with me and I'll give you my initial responses first off it was a decade ago, five years ago, sustainability, sustainability, sustainability became the new, you know, the buzz phrase. And I pointed out: ask 100 different consumers to define sustainability, and you'll absolutely get 100 different answers. It's difficult to uh, to certainly define, and also to some consumers, it means small farms, it means local, it means organic, it means now the buzzword regenerative, which we're not going to talk about, it means a lot of different stuff to a lot of different people. But to you and I, it means producing a crop uh, caloric consumption for the humans using less energy than it took to produce it ultimately would be you know what we're trying to do in other words uh we can't we can't be burning through so much energy to produce human digestible energy to where we're depleting the earth and so my thing would be let's look at big picture not about small local organic all that kind of buzzword crap that they use at whole foods it's really about can we do this indefinitely well what's really interesting is the uh, a number of metrics and the number of points that are coming together to start developing sustainability indexes and so one of the closing speakers uh, just commented she said they're doing uh, an assessment of where foods comes from and ingredients and she says you know when you look at the overall greenhouse gas footprint of the ingredients going into food or into the grocery store only 10 percent is actually attributed to transportation so this whole notion that you buy local and you reduce greenhouse gas emissions may not be as accurate as what people think. And I like the fact that they're starting to put numbers to it. Yeah, it's, it's hard to quantify, but you're saying that one of the speakers there pointed out that, you know, we can say, oh, it's it's bad to bring kumquats from New Zealand to the United States of America because we're traversing them all across the Pacific Ocean and putting them on a truck and, and, and California and shipping them to... I don't have any idea what a kumquat is. <laughs> okay. Uh, kiwi fruit. <laughs> name it whatever. Name some sort of... Uh, bizarre um, uh, foreign sounding fruit you're saying that only 10 percent of that on average comes from transportation yeah so you know uh, the whole idea here that uh, you could dramatically 
reduce uh, the greenhouse gas footprint of the products you're buying in the grocery store by buying them just because they're grown locally. That may not be the biggest factor because there's a whole bunch of other things that go into it. Water use efficiency, how much diesel fuel you're burning in that operation, what are the inputs that are going on. And I always argue this thing, you know, when you consider greenhouse gases, for example, tillage releases a lot of uh, carbon dioxide and, and nitrous oxide from soil the more you till. So, you know, one of those contrasting things which she was pointing out, which is going to be really cool, is whether or not you could assess five or six passes to control weeds versus one spray with glyphosate. Yeah, well, that gets into the thing of that you and I both say there are times chemistry certainly is better for the environment than nine trips across the well, field Well, this will be really interesting diesel. because if a consumer starts to look at the sustainability index, and the sustainability index is based on all the metrics, not just whether, uh, whether a spray is used or not, but you're yeah. looking at the impact of tillage, yeah. then all of a sudden I think the consumer is starting to wake up to this thing. I, I think the consumer is getting a little tired of non-GMO labels and water yeah right well they they do a, a little bit too much of that so let's talk about then um the idea of sustainability beyond that about carbon mm. carbon is the the wild west right now i've had people on my podcast talking about carbon you and i have read the articles there's companies that say they're going to pay you for your carbon I still don't know hardly anybody's making money on carbon. I know one guy with Extreme Ag, my other side uh, affiliation, and uh, in fact, that's how we met because he sold carbon credits. Nobody's approached me as a acreage owner in Indiana and said, we'd like to do a carbon program with you. Well, the carbon credits that we aggregated in Alberta were, were built around uh, uh, activity or lack of activity. So as farmers moved towards minimum and zero tillage, we were able to ascertain that less passes over the field meant that there was more carbon moving into the soil. But it wasn't a measurement. It was an activity-based uh, protocol. Now, when you consider that people are saying we can measure carbon, I challenge that thinking because if you put 10 soil scientists in the room and say, go and give me a carbon measurement, you'll have 10 arguments. So there is no consensus on how you measure carbon. However, Damien, we can measure the fact You mean the sequestration? The sequestration. Because, because I also have said, yeah. wait a minute, you tell me, well, that field's an alfalfa alpha damien and behind your house in indiana and so we know that in these type of soils in this climatological zone where we get 38 inches of precipitation it's two and a half tons of carbon that that alfalfa can sequester and like what if i cut it six times versus three times and i have new growth does it change the sequestration what if we have a dry spell versus a wet year it's going to change the growth pattern which then would dictate or change the carbon demand on the plant well, so I think farmers recognize the fact that uh quantifying carbon or measuring carbon uh, in soil through measurements or soil testing. You know the vagaries of soil testing. However, one of the things that is coming out is we can uh, document farmers reducing nitrous oxide emissions by mm -hmm. using nitrogen stabilizers. We can document farmers reducing nitrous oxide by split applying nitrogen. Now that's, so there are activities that it can do that we can quantify. Those are quantifiable. They are quantifiable because what we're really talking about there is release. In other words, most nitrogen is lost, correct me if I'm wrong, you try and put it into the ground and it escapes before it even gets to where it can well, do any good. Well, that's not exactly true because nitrogen uh, by its nature 
uh, is picked up by the plant in nitrate in the nitrate form or in the ammoniacal form. Now we can lose nitrate to rainfall. Thirty eight inches of rain, shit. That's like four years of rainfall where I come from. <laughs> anyway, uh, the uh, the nitrate can be leached down, or it can be uh, it, it can be volatilized if it's uh, if it's a drowned out area. It can go up and and the problem with nitrate is three hundred times more greenhouse gassing than carbon dioxide. So if farmers can prove that their activity is reducing nitrate or reducing methane, then that's something you can quantify and you should be able to get paid. But you're not getting paid for that. We're not even paying for carbon. We've been talking about that for several years now. We're still not getting in. I don't know people getting carbon payments to, you know, in, in mass. So if we're not even paying for the carbon, we've been talking about that forever. We're a long way away from nitrogen volatilization uh, uh, recapture well, uh, payments. I, I, I think that that may actually be easier to sell to package up and do nitrate reduction one prob- offsets. One pro- I don't disagree that it's more easily quantifiable, but it's also not in the common vernacular. The average consumer, even the, the person that watches you know, the Today Show, um, that's not certainly dialed into the economics of agriculture or scientifically dialed into food production, has heard about carbon, 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 climate change. The political aspect of being paid for carbon makes it more digestible. Well, the, uh, digestible, the, the very well-educated consumer watching the Today Show probably doesn't know the difference between carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. However, from a standpoint of greenhouse gassing, if agriculture can reduce methane and reduce nitrous oxide through activity uh, by doing things better, I think that kind of aligns with agronomics and output-based agriculture. And to me, it's encouraging that we're actually seeing that. And I think, Damien, that we need to change the vernacular around uh, you know, carbon, carbon to offsets. I think we, if we create offsets, just call it offsets. Yeah. So and, and you know, take the uh, take the concrete industry. People don't think about the cement industry, but it is a huge emitter of greenhouse gases, right. and, and it's really difficult for them to reduce it. Yeah. So they need to buy those offsets. And if farmers can start using slow release nitrogen, doing split nitrogen, doing nitrogen at different rates, doing things well, better. Obviously, cover crops is the cover crops is the one we sure. talk about a yeah. lot because yeah. now we've got something that's. Actually, growing more days of the year and pulling the carbon dioxide out of the air, but I think you're having a hard time. I think a techie conference like this, them talking about things like nitrogen and an offset, is more palatable or under comprehensible than it would be among uh, the political uh, movements that happen in places like Ottawa or Washington D.C. So on I'll carbon. talk to you a little bit about uh, and my, and I was willing, production of methane and, from cattle. And I was I was willing to by the way I was willing to go ahead and insult the oh. Ottawa, uh, but let's face it, you know when you're an American you can't you can't insult the politics of Ottawa when you're an American. Well, you could you could take a shot at it. Uh, <laughs> I don't think uh, you can make fun of our leader uh, Trudeau. <laughs> can you? Uh, of course you can. Yeah. Okay, so, right, but so there, hey, Hey, listen, Trude- wanna, Trude- wanna, Trudeau wanna, has his issues, but he does know what day it is. We can't yeah. say that about our. I, w- okay. I want to talk to you about cattle. Right. So cattle are being vilified right now because everybody says cattle is associated with lots. Oh, of Oh, those cow farts, listen, cow farts, cow listen, farts. But there are things we can do. Uh, in feedlot operations, there's things we can do to reduce the days on feed or reduce the amount of methane through additions, and that is quantifiable. Did you know we're actually transacting that right now in Canada? 
you are paying you're paying producers say in feed yards in Alberta to reduce days on feed or to reduce, reduce days on feed or do a change in operation where they're uh, integrating uh, some additives to reduce the amount of methane coming out of the cattle. That's quantifiable and it's being sold as offsets. Okay, so a company somewhere, let's call it the uh, electric gen- generation industry, that they have a lot of carbon uh, offsets. They, 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 yeah, large final emitter. They'll say, I'm going to give a million dollars or ten million dollars to uh, somebody to do something positive because I'm out here emitting this stuff. They're going to give money to uh, a feed yard in Alberta to say, if you feed this ration, cut back days on feed and do some other stuff to reduce methane. And then it's supposed to be verified by... Yeah, so uh, this is uh, another thing that was at the conference, but in in Alberta where we worked, there was a registration, so you would serialize the offsets. They were registered, and then you could transact, and they would be verified and even audited. So there's a good audit trail, but um, this this is something like uh, Trimble Agriculture now is the company that bought my company, and uh, they're the ones doing the... uh, they're the ones doing the uh, cattle, uh, the cattle offsets, and I think that's. Uh, when you say they're doing it, are they are they being the verification, or are they being the we've got the money from uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, and we're going to pay it to you for doing this practice? Uh, what is their role? They, what is uh, their role? Trimble would uh, Trimble ag- aggregation would would pull together all the data. So their job is to work with the feedlots, sure. pull together the data, sure. uh, submit the data into the registries, handle the whole, and then get the transaction done, and then feed the money back into the farmer's pocket. Now you're going to ask me how much is a farmer getting, and I'm going from memory here, but it I think it's around 150 to three bucks a head, I think. And uh, that would have to be verified by somebody who knows more. Okay. About that so is that action. a big, is that for the entire lifespan? So I've got this steer on feed for five and a half months in my feed yard. And I just actually lengthened, uh, the, I mean, I just changed a lot of my practices to make a buck 50. Am I going to do that? Yeah. Again, I, I don't hold me to the number. It could be better than that, and I do need to apologize because I don't have the number on top. Well, of you that. you just attended two or three days of conference, and let's face it, at your age, you can't remember everything. But so the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the point is, you, there were times when farmers are making five bucks a head, yeah, yeah, twenty yeah. bucks a head. So when you talk <laughs> about knocking another three bucks on there, that's significant yeah. in terms of the overall market yeah, yeah. out of a feedlot. That and it is feedlot generated. Yeah, yeah and feedlots obviously work on historically low to Tight margin. Low margins, yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about then the average landowner, somebody like me. Do I get money for practices, do you think, on these offsets in the next five years? Because, I mean, I've been hearing a lot about it. Nobody's approached me. Now, Grant, I can say I'm not the operator. Well, either way, me or my operator, that my, my tenant, somebody should be getting money on this. Is that going to happen in the next two to five years? I think it'll happen in the next two to five years. I think the one big question mark in the whole thing is people that are running around and saying we can measure carbon in soil and we'll measure the delta between this year and five yep. years from now and package that up and sell that. That's the big question mark for me. In terms of activity-based or reduction of greenhouse gases off the farm, I think that's quantifiable i think that will be transactable in the next three to five years and then the it's it's going to be from i mean i've heard about microsoft giving you know a half a billion dollars to true terra or something like that is that what's going to take is these companies are just voluntarily going to start ponying up dollars so they can well, go as, a, as opposed to alberta which was a regulated market so the large final emitters like the cement companies or electric companies had to reduce or remove or right. pay off uh buy buy offsets the volunteer market will take the drivers of the likes of Microsoft and once Microsoft uh, adopts the uh, the uh, 
um, they verified that I, I like these kind of yeah, offers. Right. So that'll start to generate the market. Yeah, except that it's still a voluntary thing, and you know. But it, let's face it: all these big companies want to look like they're doing the sure, right thing. Yeah. So if they can the, see we've neutralized the carbon, that that's where. Wall start. Street Journal yesterday uh, had an article about the peril, if you will, of ESG, environmental, yeah, so, yeah. social, and governance mm-hmm. standards. They all want to have standards and mandates. They want to tell their shareholders that they're all doing these things, but it's again quantifiable I no think a lot of companies can't get there without agriculture because i don't think see agriculture globally is a huge pool you know people say agriculture is uh you know greenhouse gas part of the problem it is also one of the industries that can be part of the solution well because we control a lot of acres yeah. and we also can do things on those acres you know the rainforest is neat but you can't change the practices on a rainforest other than to stop bulldozing it you right. can change the practices on an acre of farmland pretty drastically in terms of what it can do for the environment and, you know as an agronomist i look at a lot of the things that we're talking about doing uh, that that farmers can quantify on their operation and making these small changes uh, can move them into a position where they eventually could generate these offsets. And generally, these practices are good practices. Yeah. It's not like you're asking them to do stupid stuff. It's yeah. good stuff. Right. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. there was a time when, you know, you were getting paid by somebody to go out and rape your property. And now you're talking about things that generally should be good for it. Well, in, in Canada, for example, the province of Saskatchewan, uh, Saskatchewan farmers have been doing, doing no-till for 30 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, in Alberta, it's been 25 years. Mm-hmm. There's lots of areas in the United States of America. America that could be doing more no-till, yeah. and they're not. Yeah, and that's a pretty easy fix. Yeah. Uh, well, technology, well. since you're a tech guy and equipment, um, we can tell our listeners, uh, you had a brief stint with Dot, um, a company that was sold to Raven, autonomous machinery. You and I both believe that machinery is going to become autonomous. I also tell my audiences machinery is going to become smaller. It's gotten very large. It doesn't fit down the county roads. It breaks down these bridges in places like where I'm from in Indiana because they were built in the 1950s. Um, it's tremendously expensive. It squishes the soil. Um, it seems to me that machinery is going to get smaller and autonomous and obviously more technologically um, coordinated. Yeah, we're, uh, I served as uh, CEO of DOT uh, Technology Corporation, which was a U-shaped platform. And uh, we transacted with Raven and subsequently Raven transacted with CNH. So that whole autonomous uh, family that we were working in is now part of the CNH family and uh and to your point exactly right but the real pinch point that we're seeing across the board is labor and the the reality is that uh you just can't find people now at the conference here one of the robotic companies that was on stage with me was gus and gus is out of california and gus is a robotic uh spray uh a, a robotic sprayer that goes up and down the walnut groves in the groves to spray. So Gus uh, isn't a guy. Gus is a piece of autonomous Gus machinery. Gus is a piece of autonomous equipment. Uh-huh. We have 120 of, 121 of them working now, and it's really hard to get the work- people to drive a sprayer in orchards at night with the chemical and everything, and they just deploy these things now. So they're being used in orchards on the West Coast. Yes. Because obviously tree products do get a lot of treatments. 
And Absolutely. so, uh, I mean, you know, we talk about spraying a soybean crop, maybe, I don't know, four times or something. Yeah, but, but you've got a whole cycle of insects and diseases that go to these tree yeah. crops. So these tree crops get a lot, and so also they are very uniform. I mean, those trees are planted on, what, 20-foot centers or something and like there's this. there's not so, a lot of movement. I mean, yeah. they're there for a long time. <laughs> they're there for 100 years. So we've got an autonomous machine that you saw or heard about and was explained to you at this conference, the Vision Conference we're talking about. That goes up and down those, uh, and it's generally only used to uh, apply pesticides and herbicides and or foliar, foliar fertilizers. Foliar fertilizers, oh, right, right, right. Sure, right. you could do that. And then another one of the another one of the technologies was out of, actually out of Europe, and it was a company called Nio N A I O, and Nio has got these small footprint lighter uh, lighter robots, and they go along. And this is really interesting. They map out every plant that's in the field. So they're using vegetable yep. plants. They map yep. out the plants, yep. and then NIO will move along, knowing where those plants are, and can completely uh, mechanically weed out without knocking out the plants. So it knows precisely where the plants are. We're talking sub-inch accuracy here, sub-half-inch accuracy. And what's the platform of that machine? That platform... Um, Drives, flies... Uh, it drives and it would do about uh, maybe eight or ten rows of vegetables. It goes up and down and it just weeds these vegetables without any herbicide. And it, just, it, it, it plucks them, mows them. It just uh, uses scuffling, uh, like a like so, a scuffling a, wheel. Yeah. A, a mini a mini tiller. Yep, a mini little tiller. mini tiller. Yep. And what's the machine? Its size is its size is that of what? what Twenty feet wide, ten feet wide, or something? Yeah, it'd be about ten feet wide, and uh, like it's uh, it's shorter than the height of a man. And is it so. being used now? Yeah, okay. Employing them right now. And so you said they're, a- they're, that that technology is referred to a swarm technology because they can put several in a field working. And the nice part about this, once you get them set up, they can work day or night. They don't care. Right. So autonomous machines, uh, they don't even need to be owned. In other words, you could be a contractor that brings them out, like a like we you know talk about. Uh, uh, you know, contract harvesters that, uh, you know, work their way from Texas all the way up to the prairie provinces harvesting. So we could do that. These gusses that you talked about in these orchards, um, who owns them? Well, this is really interesting. At first, uh, it was uh, robotics as a service. Yeah. So the farmers would said, come and run these robots yeah. up and down. And after a while, the farmers learned that, hey, this was not that hard to run. And one person sitting in a pickup truck could run eight of these things at one time. And so the farmers say, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to teach my people how to do this. Yeah. And so we're seeing a brand new career unfold at farm level, which I refer to, uh, Damien, as the farm technology integrator. Somebody has to make all of this stuff work. It's yep. a brand new position in merging on the farm and it's very very exciting i see this happening also i spoke i've spoken to a number of conferences that are uh, aerial applicators and yep. one of the aerial applicator groups uh that I spoke at here last year said uh we're gonna see crop duster pilots you know we're taking a guy or a gal generally it's a guy and putting him in a cockpit of a little plane that's a, you know the size of a Volkswagen. Most dangerous. And, and loading trade. it, loading it down with pesticides, <laughs> and then he's going out there and flying 125 miles an hour over these fields, and then trying to not hit trees and power lines. Drone technology is already probably there to replace and supplant. Yeah, that. another uh, company that was in attendance there was a company called Razzino, and Razzino is out of the I think it's out of Iowa. And one of the things that they're working on there is they're working on catch and release. So. The drone would release with, uh, 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 I think they said they can spray up to two and a half gallons an acre, which is actually pretty pretty significant. 
for fungicide coverage. Yeah, because it'll be very. It'll be the. It's not going to be stuff that you have to have a bunch of carrying capacity. We can't take five hundred yeah, gallons keep, on these. The catch and release. They keep coming back and reloading and going back out. But you consider you uh, couple that with swarm technology, where you could have three or four or five of these things running on a field. Or more interestingly, if you could document from satellite imagery where you're likely to have a disease problem, then what you do is you deploy the the drones, uh, the aerial drones, to deal with that problem. O- only, only on the acres that need treated, yeah. and that day is coming where we say we don't need to treat even all 43,560 square feet of the acre. The problem is over on these 4,000 feet of that acre. And globally, and- if you consider, uh, Damien, where agriculture is done on... On terraces and really, really uneven, uneven land, uh, like in uh, in Japan and like in some areas of China, but Japan in particular, sure. a significant amount of the herbicide or the pesticide crop protection products are being applied by drones. Okay, because they obviously have small, odd-shaped yeah. uh, acreages. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, we did technology, we did sustainability and carbon. Uh, there was another category of things that you talked about, the takeaways from the Vision Conference. And in case you're forgetting, by the way, he was at the Vision Conference. Uh, big, uh, big big, conference than well, I think. I think the one thing that, uh, that I took away from, like I was just in Portugal not too long ago speaking at a conference, and they have this whole European Union called Farm to Fork, where the European Union is mandating a 50% reduction in pesticides, a 25% reduction, 20% reduction in, in fertilizer, and mandating that 25% of the land in Europe will be organic by 2030, and a 50% reduction in antibiotic use in animals. Eight years. And uh, eight, so this, eight, eight I could I could use the word uh, farm to f something else, but I think the policy isn't that great. But what I heard at the conference here, winding up was really fork to farm and the fact that uh, in agriculture we're going to have to listen to the consumer more mm-hmm. because the consumer is going to tell us what we need to do on the farm like it or not they are going to be the tail that wags the dog there's uh well they're more than the tail let's face it they're 99 percent or 93 percent i mean in the united states seven percent of us work in that business of ag you know peripherally uh total um so they're they're the bulk of the people and the truth is uh, you you know we you and I both say that a lot of our ag people don't like it you know and I always tell my audiences when you say educate the consumer what you usually mean is tell them why you do what you do so you can just keep doing it and that's not really educating anybody plus I'm not sure the consumer cares to be educated we got two big differences though um, the consumer does reign supreme more so the more capitalistic you are obviously because you know in in venezuela you go and get whatever food you can get in the united states of america or canada you go in there and say oh there's nine different versions of fake milk there's that toilet paper there's, could be a little bit tighter it's, it has it has been in the last year and a half so the point is you you have these situations where there's so much different variety that you know the consumer does make its choice in the European Union model, you just said that's not consumer choice. That's that ideologically is, driven. That's right? ideologically and politically driven because the consumer didn't say we want to make twenty five percent of uh, the farms this or whatever. That was that was ideological and political. It's very dangerous. I just read this week where uh, there's an organization in Kenya press, pressing the Kenyan government to abolish two hundred 
uh, crop protection products in the country of Canada, all driven by arm twisting from the European Union. I say, how dare they? Something that's a debacle. Follow what's going on in Sri Lanka. Okay. That is ideology taken to the max, and it's resulted in a 40% decrease in food production. And in uh, December alone, food prices rose 22% in December alone. Okay. Now, you also pointed out something uh, that the issue in poor Kenya is that they, the, the average consumer there, you know, the poor, the poor woman with a couple of kids to feed, probably spends 40 to 50% of her income on groceries. Yep. Whereas it's six or seven percent here in the United States, um, and yet the Europeans, mostly as you said, European Union and political forces went there and decided we're going to tell them what's best for these people oh, yeah. and make their food even more expensive. Yeah. So anyway, let's back to the consumer thing. You you mentioned a gal that got and presented this, and this is how we're going to close it out. Something that gave you hope, and I don't like to use the word hope. It's a little bit it's a little bit touchy. It's a little bit undefinable. You got hope. You got some positive out of a gal that got up and presented because she said you thought it was going to be. Uh, I thought it was going to be uh, another person dumping on agriculture, but, but she actually said, you know, I'm waiting. For for the day when the consumer wakes up and understands that a genetically modified wheat that can resist drought is actually better for climate change than anything else. She said, I'm waiting for that day to happen. So holy cow, did I ever turn on? Because of course in uh, Argentina right now, <laughs> right, right. Uh, in Argentina right now, BioSeries has just released a drought tolerant, saline tolerant, gen genetically engineered wheat, which is exactly what we need. Yep. I don't think that we can get through uh, adopting or adapting to climate change in agriculture unless we move to geo food. And what I mean by that is genetically engineered organic food production which means using genetic engineering to reduce our inputs. That's the direction I think we need to go. And it's really interesting because the poor Whole Foods customer is going to be in such a quandary. It's genetically engineered <laughs> food, but it was done so to be organic so yep. we didn't have to use herbicides and pesticides. Well, that messed them up. Uh, that gave you hope at the Visions Conference when you actually thought you did, you you thought you perceived a degree of understanding. Well, I think what's happening is slowly, slowly the consumer is starting to get educated and being more concerned about where their food is coming from. COVID has helped that because I think so. they're cooking more at home. And they got a little and, scared. They saw a yeah, few empty shelves. Exactly. And they're yeah. starting to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And when you start to ask questions about where food is produced and stuff like that, you start to understand the farming operations today are pretty damn good at what they're doing. Yeah. It's not as bad as what PETA would have you watch sure. on TV. So you you left with some hope on that because this, and this gal did not come from the Farm Bureau, which is still out here saying, you know, the usual about, uh, you know, tell your story. She came from uh, a, a came different from perspective. A consumer, and yeah, uh, How Good was the name of the organization, and they're doing the sustainability index for a whole bunch of restaurants and stuff yeah. like that. And that, uh, her name was Christina. I'm trying to remember her last name. Can't. But uh, How Good was the site, and I thought that was worthwhile having a look at. Exciting time to be in the business of agriculture. His name is Rob Syke. He is the CEO and founder of AgVisor Pro, and they would like you to know that AgVisor Pro connects agriculture to its experts. If you want to learn more about his company or Rob Syke, you can find your company at yeah, AgVisor Pro, and the real simple way to do this is simply go to your iOS or your Android device and download AgVisor with an O, uh, AgVisor Pro, and uh, download it, and instantaneously you can be talking to plant experts, crop experts, uh, sorry, livestock experts, equipment experts, or business experts on AgVisor Pro, and uh, really excited to bring this brand new connectivity platform into the into our sector. We said it's kind of like the Uber for agricultural uh, information. Uber for brains. 
Uber for brains and agriculture. Like eHarmony for agriculture. We match seekers to experts. Find Boy. find the person that can help you and do it instantaneously. Also, if you want to keep up with Rob, he's got some pretty smart stuff, and, and he and I have been friends for a while. Like I said, he, he wrote a book, and, and I put a testimony together for that, and then he put a testimony together for my book, Food Fear. Food Fear. Um, we, uh, Don't fear your food. We can, we can be linked to each other through all the social media stuff, but you can find him on all the social media. It's S-A-I-K-R-O-B, Rob or Robert, S-A-I-K. Uh, R-Psych at Twitter. R-Psych at Twitter, and uh, you know what? I encourage you to look him up. Until next time, also, while you're looking up stuff, check out the great work I'm doing over there for Extreme Ag. That's X-T-R-E-N-E. Hey, can I tell you about my Damien Mason, my Damien Mason impression? That's yeah. not too bad, is it? Uh, it's a great show, Damien. I don't know if any of these people actually agree that's a great impression. Check out ExtremeAg.Farm for some of the other great work I'm putting together for farming operations that want to up their game by seeing some of the new trials, experiments, and mistakes that the guys from Extreme Ag are making. So check that all out. Check out AgvisorPro.com. Check out any past episodes. We're up to like 230 of these and share them with your friends. All right. Thanks for being here, Mr. R. Psych. Farm on, people. All right. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture. This episode of the business of agriculture was brought to you by Land Trust. Landowners just like you are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use. Millions of recreators actively seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Owners of farm and ranch properties are partnering with recreation access network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit LandTrust.com BOA, as in Business of Agriculture, to learn more. That's LandTrust.com BOA.